Check this. Episode 20, Lessons from Seattle, COVID-19 with Dr. Nick Mark. Let's do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Really excited for you guys to hear this episode. It's a two-parter with Dr. Nick Mark. We're going to look at lessons we can learn from the Seattle experience there. Probably about two weeks, two or three weeks ahead of us in terms of those in Canada, in terms of dealing with COVID-19. So there's a lot of lessons there. And and we also have the second part, which will come out as soon as we have it ready, will be on um, some of the clinical presentation and what we can learn in terms of management, in terms of investigations, in terms of treatment. Um, so it's a real valuable uh, lesson that uh, Nick uh, discusses. And he, he, his one pager on Twitter went viral, and that's how I found him. And I just want to commend him for the work he's doing to try and solve this thing. Um and just for our, our dedicated listeners, you guys, like, you know, we, with COVID-19 on the minds of so many, this is going to be our area of focus for the next little while here. We're just going to try and tackle some of the issues that uh, come to mind. So we, we have several episodes coming up on, um, you know, how do we stay sane throughout this? How, how do we take care of each other as clinicians? Um, so a lot of ideas coming through and, uh, yeah, so that'll be the theme for many of the episodes coming through. Um, before getting into today's episode, I want to tell you about our sponsors. First off, audible.ca or audible.com. Fantastic audiobook service that provides you with a book a month. Uh, and I've been using these, I've been using audible for the past five years and it's changed my boogie. That's for real. Um, use the code attached to the show notes and you'll get a free month of service. Uh, must do. Um, our second sponsor, BetterHelp, online counseling service that provides convenient, reliable counseling service at your disposal, whether that's through video chat, through telephone, through messaging. And, and I got to say, at a time like this when we're all uh, pretty isolated, um, this would be an ideal time for better help. You could use the promo code solving healthcare and get a 10% discount off. All right, let's just get to it. Dr. Nick Mark, he's a pulmonologist and intensive care doctor in Seattle. And once again, he was famous for putting together this one page document on what to expect with COVID-19, which we've attached to the show notes. But I, this conversation is Basically, the lessons he learned, they've learned so far in dealing with COVID nineteen, and the key theme here is that they're surviving, they're getting by, and I think this is an important message for all: is that we have measures in place that are put in by our public health 
team and services, these these heroes that are putting together a plan for us to stay safe. And I, I there's no reason not to have faith in the, in these uh, in these plans. And so, so without further ado, Doctor Nick Mark. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to Dr. Nick Mark, and I got to commend you. Number one, thank you for doing the show. You've just come off a night shift, and uh, we are dying to learn from the Seattle experience with COVID-19. So, Nick, thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to share what we've learned over the last few weeks. First of all, uh, I want to just tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm a yeah. board certified internist, pulmonologist, and critical care doc. I work in a, a large, uh, like a tertiary quaternary medical center here in Seattle. By happenstance, I, I had a lot of shifts that kind of coincided with the onset of this. So I've seen this sort of evolve from a few scattered cases to a larger volume. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of the fact that I did my training here in Seattle, I have friends at all of the local hospitals. So I've heard from them. Mm-hmm. So between that and uh, spending a lot of time reading about this thing we're, we're up against, um, I, I've, I've learned some things that, I've, that I, I can share with you. Absolutely. And I, I mean, Nick, we might as well get right to it. So you, as you said, you got to see it from its early stages up till now. So give us a sense of the trajectory in hospital, what you've seen amongst the patients that are admitted. How sick are they? What's your typical patient? Are they young, old? I just give us a general sense of what you've been seeing. So there have been a couple different kind of waves to this. My colleagues at Evergreen have seen a lot more patients because they're in very close proximity to the nursing home, which was one of the big disease clusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us have seen, going back several weeks, have seen these sort of sporadic, unexplained ARDS patients that in retrospect may turn out to have been COVID-19. Really? Then over the last few weeks, as awareness about this kind of, uh, you know, as we became more aware that this was an emerging epidemic and, you know, unfortunately it took a while, but testing became available. We've diagnosed people with it. First, it was just the really critically ill people with with refractory hypoxemic respiratory failure on event. And now we're testing more and more people. Um, In my hospital, we've tested hundreds of people and we've diagnosed dozens of people. Mm -hmm. Not all of them are admitted. There's a thriving telehealth program which is managing people out of the hospital. Mm. What we know from the experience in China and Italy is that most patients with, with uh, COVID-19 uh, have mild disease. Mm-hmm. So testing positive does not necessarily mean you need to be hospitalized. In fact, for most people, it means you shouldn't be hospitalized. Right, right. My perspective, like yours, you know, as an intensivist, we tend to see the sickest of the sick. So my perspective is a little skewed towards those folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe we could speak to, from what you've seen. So you are seeing the sickest of the sick with the COVID-19 diagnosis. And what's a typical patient like in the intensive care unit? I don't want to go into, uh, out of respect for privacy, um, I don't don't want to tell you about any one specific patient, but I can sort of tell you about several. Um, Most of them have been older but not all. There are some young people. There are a couple um, healthcare providers even who are, who are ill with it too. So it, it runs young and old, but skews old. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people without comorbidities, but most of the really sick people have multiple comorbidities. These are the comorbidities that you read about, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, primarily. 
Mm-hmm. He, he reported more in China, um, probably probably here too. I think there's just more of it in China than there is here. Right. Okay. So basically, what I'm hearing is all ages could be affected, but you you are seeing that skew towards the older comorbid, like patients with multiple comorbidities, as being the sicker ones within the intensive care unit. Correct. Okay. And how about the like our fear as Canadians is that it's going to overwhelm our system. It's going to overwhelm our ICUs. What's this experience been at your site? So I want to start to answer that question by just saying right now, the situation is working. Mm. Many people are working incredibly hard and have totally risen to the occasion. You know, I'm privileged to work with some amazing people an amazing team, not just doctors and nurses, but RTs, techs, sports staff, and Things are functioning. We are not running out of ventilators. Uh, there are shortages. These are shortages of things like N95s and hand wash and inexplicably toilet paper. Um, <laughs> apparently, people seem to think that they need to have one month of food but one year of toilet paper. Yeah. I'm not exactly clear what their plan is for those 11 months, but you know, Costco shelves have been emptied of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, in, but in the hospitals, the supply situation is holding up. Mm-hmm. I think one place where we, we are facing another, uh, a pretty significant shortage is a shortage of information. There's both too much to read and no answers to key questions. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why my one-page summary caught on was because it helped fill some of this information vacuum. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, you, you know, you're not running out of ventilators, but say, like, how big is your ICU? So uh, I cover four hospitals in yeah. Sweden. And they vary in size. The largest one is, I think, about 40-some beds. So the, the issue has not been beds. It's been more that staffing is tight. Staffing, right. staffing has been tight in the past. So that's, you know, that's, not, that's not a totally novel problem. But it's a problem that's made harder when you have a cluster of sick patients who require you know, a lot of nursing, sometimes one-to-one nursing. Right. Um, other places that have been... Other, other, other things that have been challenging are a lack of negative pressure rooms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are much scarcer than ventilators, right? And um, most ICUs that I've worked at have, you know, just a couple. Mm-hmm. So that's one limitation. A lot of people have talked about running out of PPE. I haven't seen that personally, but I know, I know other people in the Seattle area where they've been told to reuse and conserve. And I think those are great measures to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are really good ways to reuse a paper hood without contaminating yourself. You have to be really careful. And really it's best if you make all of the PPE a two person operation. So you have one person who's helping you and watching you. And in the case of the paper hood, they can actually wipe down the outside. So the outside is clean and then you can take it off. Mm -hmm. So lots of tricks of the trade like that, that help you not burn through those limited resources. Excellent. So it sounds like you guys are still using airborne precautions. Is that correct? No. No. Okay. I think the recommendations are airborne, but uh, most hospitals in Seattle area have gone over to a airborne for aerosolizing procedures, droplet, everything else, which I think based on the experience in China is probably safe. From my perspective as an intensivist, we see a lot of those aerosolizing procedures, Mm -hmm. intubation, you know, somebody who's on positive pressure. We can talk more about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Suctioning, talk more about that in a second. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that we encounter where there are droplets, and that's something to be really mindful of. Mm-hmm. 
but for for most interactions, it's healthcare provider wearing a mask, patient wearing a mask, right. and not necessarily an N95, depending on what's going on. Okay. Wow. I have so many questions. I, I, I know I'm a bit all over the place just because no, there's, there's, there's so many things to explore. So that's really, I mean, for, for me anyway, hearing that, you know, that you're not from a bed perspective, not being overrun, the capacity in terms of manpower and nursing makes sense to me. Have you had much in the way of having to isolate staff because of exposure and so on? Well, so I want to I want to throw one caveat on there, which is that we have not reached we have not reached the point of critical shortages, but mm-hmm. I don't know where we're going to be in a few weeks. And what absolutely what me is that we're clearly still on the upstroke of this. So the fact that we have not run out now doesn't mean that we won't. And if you look at the data, you know there there have been some some great um, side by sides of the rate of rise in the number of cases in Italy and here. Um, they're very similar. So. You know, I, I, I'm hopeful that a lot of the measures that have been taken by the state, shutting down schools, uh, shutting down social gatherings, mm-hmm. encouraging uh, social distancing, et cetera, will help uh, flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. But it remains to be seen. Um, and I know there are hospitals like Evergreen, which is really close to this, where they've gotten full, not, not over full, but they've gotten really full. And they've been working mm-hmm. really, really hard to take excellent care of people. Excellent. And just to get a sense too, uh, I apologize, Nick, just um, when did we start seeing cases in Seattle again, just to get a sense of the, the trajectory? There was a person diagnosed as early as January, and I forget the exact date. And then there was nothing for a long while. And then there were cases appearing in this cluster at a nursing home. And um, sorry, I'm a little sleep deprived. I'm not remembering no, the date of that. but that cluster sort of appeared. And then we started to see all these community cases where Mm -hmm. the route of transmission was unclear. It was clearly um, person to person, but it couldn't be established. Put in a plug for some amazing work being done out of the University of Washington on two fronts. Um, One is the virology group there has done an amazing job sequencing this. So a lot of what we know about how the virus is spread here has been by sequencing and seeing, okay, clearly this person gave it to this person, this strain originated here. Some of the people in Seattle have gotten it uh, from Europe, clearly. They can trace it back there. But mm-hmm. most of them seem to be going back to um, an earlier uh, source in China. Wow. That's, a, that's unbelievable. I don't know um, how global that these initiatives are for uh, you know, tracing the origins, but uh, I'm sure that could come in handy as we kind of try and get things under control. What about... Oh, the other plug I was going to make oh, real yeah, quick. You said two plugs. Yeah, that's they've right. Really, they've done an amazing job, too, of setting up testing. Mm. There's been some, some deservedly positive coverage of this, like in the New York Times and elsewhere. But they basically, lab medicine, put together a test that they're mm. running, I think, about 1,000 a day. They're turning them around quick. So we've quickly gone from a situation where you couldn't test people to where you can expeditiously test hundreds of people. Wow. And, and what are the, what's the kind of turnaround time for, the, for those tests? I believe it's supposed to be a day. There's, a, there's a, an asterisk on that, which is that, you know, it matters when the sample is collected, when it is transported, when it's received, if it gets into that batch. So kind of depending on that, it could be two days or it could be one. Okay. Awesome. 
before I forget, how was morale, man? Like it was like, how's, how are you guys doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Great question. People were tired. I think, you know, it's stressful. It's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting in two ways. It's exhausting at work, but it, it, it's like, it's not over when you leave work. Right. You know, you're, you're, when you're at home with your family, you're, you're cognizant of this, you know, you're, you're worried not just about taking care of your patients, but you're worried about, you know, taking care of your loved ones at home. So mm. that, that wears on you. It's definitely, that, that definitely makes it tough. I think the place where we've gotten a lot of support is just having a team of people who support each other, you yeah. know, having, being able to flex staffing up, being able to, you know, support one another, back people up has really made a big difference. And then, mm. you know, I think people just being able to like stay positive, tell jokes, you know, that that's always a good strategy. Yeah. Keep it. Ri- no, I hear you. I mean, we, li- I mean, you know, it. we live in this world of uh, ICU where we see the sickest of the sick, whether it's COVID or not, but trying to keep a level of sanity is, is vital. Yeah. And, and one important other thing to remember too, is that even, even in the midst of a, you know, a COVID epidemic, there's still going to be lots of other people who don't have COVID who are very sick. Yeah. I spent most of last night managing sick patients who did not have COVID. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like the ICU stops being the ICU and becomes a COVID ward. The ICU, you know, remains a place where you have to, you know, keep your wits about you, think physiology, do procedures. You know, it's not, it's not just isolating COVID. Yeah. No, that's a, that's great advice. Like, like just a ballpark, like what percentage would you say of your patients are COVID related versus non? Depends on the hospital. Uh, yeah. Some, some it's most others. It's just a PFO. Um, it it kind of just depends on proximity to where, to these clusters. Yeah. Fair enough. And can you give us a sense of the, like, how quickly things progress amongst the patients like that's because we, like we're in Ottawa, we still haven't had an ICU related COVID case. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so like, you know, is this one of these cases where you see someone, you know, uh, one minute, six hours later, they're, they're extremely sick needing uh, escalating doses of oxygen, or is it kind of like you're any other flu or, or, I've seen both trajectories, actually. So I've seen people who have kind of a stuttering respiratory failure, which, you know, which is a tempo we see a lot of in the ICU. I've also seen people who come in very hypoxic um, and then get even more hypoxic and need mm-hmm. kind of uh, salvage therapies for hypoxic respiratory failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what you, we were seeing in the literature as well. So any advice for at an ICU level, like if we get these patients or when we get these patients, get just maybe some advice in terms of, you know, some practical tips that might not be intuitive to, to some of us, like, like some of the things that uh, we, we've talked about, for example, internally is like the ways we should intubate somebody, the yes. ways, like the ways that you would maybe not um, use BiPAP for aerosol reasons, like, any kind of nuance that you, you let's talk about those things. So, yeah. I mean, uh, as, as any, as any listener who's an intensivist knows, intensivists love to talk about airway management, right? Probably a hundred times more we say about putting the tube in and taking the tube out. And, you know, probably should balance that more in this case. It's, it's probably warranted because there's important safety implications to how you do it. So the approach that, that I, I, I and others have used 
which I think is a really good one, is to try to avoid uh, non-invasive. And the Mm -hmm. reason being that having a mask on their face, there's a significant air leak, and that air that's leaking out contains a lot of aerosolized viral particles. And so it endangers staff in proximity. If you're going to put somebody on by tap, it really, really needs to be in a negative pressure room. Mm-hmm. And you have to make sure that staff are, are wearing the appropriate protection. I think there's still theoretically a risk. An N95 doesn't catch everything. A papper doesn't always work perfectly. So, I mean, that's the risk that needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you know, there may be patients where it's worth individualizing their care. Um, somebody with COPD who's having an exacerbation they may benefit from that. And that may not be related to the COVID. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if somebody's um, DNI, you know, you you do not intubate, do not not intubate, you know, you want to be respectful of their wishes. And so, you know, in general, trying to avoid BiPAP, but individualizing care where you have to. Mm -hmm. High flow nasal cannula is a bit of a conundrum because in theory, it has the same risks. So we're trying not to use it. But there's some encouraging data out of China that suggests that you can avoid intubating some of these people. Yeah, that's the balance, right? Like you could potentially provide somebody with care that can avoid them being intubated and avoid that high resource utilization in the ICU. And it's like, it's like, think about this at scale, right? So I mean, if my choices are, I, you know, I'm going to need thousands, tens of thousands of ventilators to take care of these folks, or, you know, $50 high flow nasal cannula. If you're on a ventilator, you need to have um, a respiratory therapist and a nurse. You need to be on sedation. Yeah. Nutrition needs to be via a feeding tube. You know, you need that. You need to be monitored very closely. There's all of these challenges. Yeah. Then you have to worry about things like, are we going to have enough propofol and fentanyl to keep these people comfortably sedated? Wow. On the other hand, $50 high flow nasal cannulas may be a promising solution. I think we just need to find out do they, do they have advantages? Who do they have advantages for? And can we balance the risk benefit? And we don't know the answer to those questions yet. Yeah. So far, we're not using them. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Like, we need more info, really. Sorry, just to follow up on that in terms of when you see ICU patients, we read a lot about this, like, late stage cardiogenic uh, implications. Are you seeing that in, in where you're at? So it's a bit of a riddle, right? Um, there, there, there are several patients who have cardiogenic shock who, who have COVID. One of the challenges, and I'm a little bit skeptical um, about this, just because the people who get bad, bad hypoxemic respiratory failure from COVID tend to be people who are older and have comorbidities like cardiovascular disease. Right. So it's hard to know, is this a distinct clinical entity caused by the virus? Or is this a epiphenomenon of people who have risk factors developing cardiogenic shock in the setting of the virus? Right. You know, we know that stress cardiomyopathy is a common occurrence in the ICU, mm-hmm. um, especially in people who have prolonged stays. Mm-hmm. And one of the characteristics of this is that people have a very long time on the ventilator. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I, there's probably there's probably some truth to it. Um, I'm waiting for the pathologists to jump in and tell us. You know, yes, the virus infects the heart, or no, it doesn't. Or you know, like I, I just think we need more clarity about what this syndrome is. No, that's that's fair. We alluded to this before, and I just want to be. I'm not 100 percent sure I asked this question. In terms of the staff getting infected, are you seeing 
a lot of of uh, healthcare providers getting inf- infected. One and number two, when infected, are they are they becoming like ICU patients are relatively sick? So I don't want to I don't want to talk about specific individuals, but ASEP put out a statement about two ED physicians who have gotten sick. One of them very sick, um, taking care of patients, you know, doing doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. So I think even for you know, I'm going to say this as a late 30s that 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 is uh, that is a younger person. Yeah, I, I would say that even for a younger person, uh, we are at risk. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Uh, there are the the Chinese gentleman who was the big whistleblower and raised awareness of this. I think he was 34, mm-hmm. so and he, and he died from this. Yeah, despite receiving ex, what sounds like excellent ICU care, he you know was on a ventilator. He got salvage therapies, including ECMO. So mm-hmm. um, I think you know it's it's scary because even though most of the people who are dying are older, there are younger people who who are also getting very sick from this. Yeah, and I think that's the fear, right? Like, um, you know, it's one thing when when it's almost predictable that it's old, older comorbid patients, but when it's people you you know at a younger age that are healthy, that's when it gets pretty anxiety provoking. And I, I and I know for our listeners, it's a big area of concern. Like, you know, if you're providing care and you're getting exposed, you know, what are your risks? But you know, I think. Unfortunately, we're in the spot where this is what we signed up for, man. Like this is yeah. this, this is, is what yeah, this is why um, this is why we got into it too to you know help people at when they when they really need it. So right, I, I've seen people on Twitter talking about hazard pay. Like no, <laughs> this, is, job. this, is, this is all part of it. Slow yeah. times and busy times. This is all right. part of, all part of this. But wow, like it's um, it's it could be scary when you really sit and think about it. So you, you mentioned kind of what are some what are some tips? So um, there's an excellent picture floating around about a nice setup that you can use for intubating, mm-hmm. where you connect the inline suction catheter, and you connect it to a uh, this the T piece splitter, mm-hmm. and do some tubing which goes to a viral filter which goes to a colorimetric catagraph. That way you have everything set up, and all you have to do is put the tube in, connect that, you can confirm your colorimetric change, and then you can take the colorimetric indicator off and connect the ventilator, and there's a filter in there, so you haven't exposed anyone to anything. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's a nice... Is it, is it a video or a picture? It's a picture of it. Um, I It's on Twitter. I'll send you... I'll okay. send it afterwards. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes, too. Very useful. The other thing that I think is a really important thing is, you know, there's kind of this, like, macho, oh, I don't need PPE thing. Don't do that, first of all. <laughs> of all that a, I didn't know that's a thing. That's uh, a much of thing. I, I, before I went to medical school, I was uh, I was uh, an EMT on a fire department. So there was, okay. a lot, there was a lot of like, oh, you know, why are you wearing gloves? Kind yeah. Of, you know, macho-ness. Anyway, wear gloves, wear all of it. Wear double gloves, actually. Wear booties, wear, wear the appropriate mask, wear a gown. But actually more important than all of that is have somebody help you. Mm-hmm. It's easy to screw this up. It's easy to do things in the wrong order and contaminate yourself. Mm-hmm. And if the experience dealing with past 
past infectious diseases like Ebola is any indication, that's actually where healthcare providers got sick. Yeah, exactly. You know, touching their face with dirty gloves as they were removing their mask instead mm-hmm. of taking the outer gloves off, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, and that's actually something where practice is key. So if, if you all have not had cases of this yet, now is the time to practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, can reuse so you're not wasting valuable supplies, but everybody should practice being the person who's putting it on and being the assistant. Yeah. If, if there's one thing I've learned is that, you know, really take the time, practice, you know, uh, do not rush it despite the situation feeling like it's, you need to jump in there, take the time. Cause if you're out of commission, that's another person in that workforce that can't help out. So just, you know, take care of yourself too. Absolutely. Um, No, that's good advice, Nick. Another thing uh, that I think is really important to emphasize is that it's always important to be, you know, compassionate and caring, but it's, it's much more important now. So one of the things that we've done is we have limited visitors. So you can imagine what the experience is like if you're a patient where this is terrifying, first Mm -hmm. of all, you know, people around you are getting sick. Now you're sick, you're in the hospital and you're isolated. Not only are all the people who come into your room wearing all of this scary garb and they don't want to touch you, but your family can't come and visit you. And in that setting, you know, putting your hand on somebody, you're safe, reassuring them, spending a few extra minutes can go a really long way. Um, And I know some of our colleagues, actually you uh, in palliative care, you know, I mean, this is, this is a great, this is a great opportunity to get their help because you know, we may be busy, we may have many patients, but having somebody who can spend time with them is really valuable. That's, uh, I'm glad you brought up that point, Nick, because it's easy to lose the humanity in all this. You know what I mean? Like it's, as you said, like there's just so much going on. There's so much stressors. We forget that, you know, that person, what they're actually going through at that time, not only is scary, but it's also they're also feeling a lack of connection during that time. So, right. And um, yeah, that's part of our job too. And um, no, I really appreciate that. Yeah. One thing that I've been thinking and um, I haven't, I haven't had the bandwidth to think about this much or actually get this going. But uh, one thing that I, I, I think we could probably work on is for people who don't have iPads and FaceTime and whatnot, you know, can we get donations? So that- wow. They're isolated, can still see their family and their loved ones, even if they can't visit. Wow, that's, uh, and to be honest with you, that's not, um, you know, I think a lot of people have old iPads, old iPhones that they're not using. Like, that's not, uh, that's not a crazy idea, my friend. Right here. Yeah, no, I I, I think, you know, somebody, somebody who has a little bandwidth, uh, maybe maybe us uh, uh, after some sleep we should think about, is there a way to do that? Is there a way to organize collections for that so that yeah. patients who are on full isolation can have that bit of compassion of being able to interact with loved ones? I think that's really valuable. Wow. Nick, man, there's so many lessons here. This is, this is really, for me anyway, I could, I could speak for, I think a lot of my colleagues, super helpful information. Like in general, it sounds like you guys are doing relatively okay. We don't know when the height of this is going to happen, but you're managing, you know, it's, you're, you're seeing most of your patients are once again, that are ultra sick, seem to be on skewed towards the older and more mm-hmm. comorbid. You, you seem to like, there's still that morale is still there amongst your group. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening to our episode with Dr. Nick Mark. I hope that had some value and hopefully settled some nerves for many of you that are anticipating the onslaught of COVID-19. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a, a rating on iTunes or Spotify, whatever your listening venue of choice is. Um, leave comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us at Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube at, at quadcast. And we, like I said before, as soon as we got content on COVID-19, we want to be a reliable source for y'all. So we'll be pumping out content as, as, as soon as we get it. So stay tuned and everybody stay safe. <laughs>